Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this manic Monday, a day where financial news is truly coming in everything, everywhere, all at once. Maybe Oscar-worthy coverage and analysis of the global efforts to protect depositors, shore up confidence and prevent runs on other banks across the United States. All happening this weekend following the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, the second largest banking failure, in fact, in U.S. history. Now, President Biden is set to provide what I'd call a verbal reassurance any moment now. And we will bring that to you live. Rahel Solomon joins us now. Rahel, I call it verbal reassurance, but also I think some explanation of why they moved so swiftly in the measures that they took. What should we expect from the president? Well, you know, Julia, I think this is all... I'm going to interrupt you, Rahel. President Biden speaking. Let's listen in. What's happening to Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank? Today, thanks to the quick action of my administration over the past few days, Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Small businesses across the country, the deposit accounts at these banks can breathe easier knowing they'll be able to pay their workers and pay their bills. And their hardworking employees can breathe easier as well. Last week, when we learned of the problems of the banks and the impact they could have on jobs of small businesses and banking system overall, I instructed my team to act quickly to protect these interests. They've done that. They've done that. On Friday, the government regulator in charge, the FDIC, took control of Silicon Valley Bank's assets. And over the weekend, it took control of Signature Bank's assets. Treasury Secretary Yellen and the team of banking regulators have taken action, immediate action. And here are the highlights. First, all customers who had deposits in these banks can rest assured, I want to rest assured they'll be protected and they'll have access to their money as of today. That includes small businesses across the country that bank there and need to make payroll, pay their bills, and stay open for business. No losses will be, and I want, this is an important point, no losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Let me repeat that. No losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Instead, the money will come from the fees that banks pay into the deposit insurance fund. Because of the actions of that because of the actions that our regulators have already taken, every American should feel confident that their deposits will be there if and when they need them. Second, the management of these banks will be fired. If the bank is taken over by FDIC, the people running the bank should not work there anymore. Third, investors in the banks will not be protected. They knowingly took a risk, and when the risk didn't pay off, investors lose their money. That's how capitalism works. And fourth, there are important questions of how these banks got into the circumstance in the first place. We must get the full accounting of what happened and why those responsible can be held accountable. In my administration, no one, in my no one is above the law. And finally, we must reduce the risk of this happening again. During the Obama-Biden administration, we put in place tough requirements on banks 
like Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, including the Dodd-Frank law to make sure that the crisis we saw in 2008 would not happen again. Unfortunately, the last administration rolled back some of these requirements. I'm going to ask Congress and the banking regulators to strengthen the rules for banks to make it less likely this kind of bank failure would happen again and to protect American jobs and small businesses. Look, the bottom line is this. Americans can rest assured that our banking system is safe. Your deposits are safe. Let me also assure you, we will not stop at this. We'll do whatever is needed on top of all this. Let's also take a look at a moment to put the situation in a broader context. We've made strong economic progress in the past two years. We've created more than 12 million new jobs, more jobs in two years than any president has ever created in a single four-year term. Unemployment is below 4 percent for 14 straight months. Take-home pay for workers is going up, especially for lower- and middle-income workers. And we've seen record numbers of people apply to start new businesses, more than 10 million of them, more than 10 million applications over the net last two years starting businesses. Now we need to keep the program, this progress, going. That's what swift action that my administration over the past few years is all about, protecting depositors, protecting the banking system, protecting the economic gains we've made together for the American people. Thank you, God bless you, and may God protect our troops. See you in California. Mr. President, what do you know right now about why this happened? And can you assure Americans that President Biden speaking there to address the measures taken over the weekend to shore up confidence in the banking sector. And as we were expecting him, the first thing, the first line out of his mouth was deposits will be there when you need them to try and reassure customers, clients of banks across the United States that their deposits are protected, but also emphasizing that this isn't a bailout, that no taxpayer money will be used to backstop some of these banks that are and remain a concern. Rahel Solomon is back with us. Rahel, I rudely interrupted you before. Before you could even suggest, and I knew exactly you're going to predict exactly what President Biden said there. Um, what do you make of those comments? I think expected. Expected, but perhaps critically needed, right? I mean, the first comments out of his mouth, as you alluded to there, Julia, was that uh, confidence, right? Instilling confidence for Americans, saying that Americans can have confidence that their deposits will be safe, that payrolls will be safe. And Julia, as you know, part of the story about why SVB failed in spectacular fashion as the way it did and the way that it did was because of a lack of confidence, right? When SVB communicated, some would argue poorly, that it needed to raise cash in order to uh, become more liquid, well, that really sent off a panic between investors, between founders, and we saw a traditional bank run. So we saw the federal regulators really step up in dramatic fashion and very quick fashion over the weekend to try to prevent the contagion, right? Try to prevent that uh, panic from spreading. And Julia, really quickly, I just want to provide a bit of color. I just spoke to a founder who had her money tied up at SVB for the last five years or so. She said they had actually been a really great banking partner. She did find it shocking in terms of what we're learning about their risk management, but she said that from Wednesday to Friday, it was sheer panic within the founder community, within the tech community, as uh, founders were hearing from their investors, some saying, take your money out, others saying, everything is okay. She said as of Saturday, some of her business accounts were bouncing, that the money was not there from her SVB line of credit. And so in this sheer confusion about what would happen to SVB, she started to move some of her expenses to her personal credit card. It really just gives you a sense, Julia, of just the uh, range of emotion 
emotions that founders and employees, of course, of these startups must have been going through this weekend and why we saw such quick action from the federal government and why President Biden again trying to stress that this was a limited situation, but that the government will do everything, do whatever is needed to try to prevent uh, any contagion, to try to prevent any additional fragility beyond what is already evident. Yeah, rest assured that the banking system is safe. But I have to say, I have great sympathy for some of these startups that were wondering what on earth they were going to do, quite frankly, because they're not bank equity analysts. They're not economists to be able to understand that um, perhaps their deposits aren't safe. We're going to be debating this later on in the show. Rahel, great to have you with us for now. Let's just take a step back and understand what just happened in the past 24 hours. The Federal Reserve, the U.S. Treasury and the U.S. bank regulator, the FDIC, announced customers of Silicon Valley Bank will be able to access frozen cash today. And you heard President Biden reiterate that just now. So this includes all uninsured deposits, so amounts over $250,000 because they were protected. We are talking billions of dollars in deposits in the case of firms like Roku and Circle. And this is crucial for a couple of reasons. One, it protects the tech firms who suddenly face collapse, as Rahel was just saying. Some unable to even meet wage costs this week. We'll meet one on the show later. And two, it implicitly, not explicitly, but it implicitly protects depositors in other banks where similar, different but similar balance sheet concerns exist. Now, for those banks, too, there are now access to loans. They can use some of the government bonds or assets like them on their balance sheet as collateral with the Federal Reserve so they can get money from the Federal Reserve without being punished for the fact that those bonds have lost value due to the Federal Reserve rising interest rates, raising interest rates. So it means they don't have to sell them at a loss. And this is crucial. Remember, it was the huge bond losses at Silicon Valley Bank that began this panic in the first place. Now, authorities didn't stop there. Stick with me. They also took ownership of crypto industry lender Signature Bank after a run on deposits there. Now, these emergency actions are also global to some degree in scope. The UK orchestrating the sale of Silicon Valley Bank's UK arm to HSBC for just over one pound. Now, the one thing I would argue got missed perhaps in all of this and we'll discuss is perhaps the ban on short selling on some of the regional US bank stocks. Now, Again, implicitly, depositors are safe, but the balance sheets of some of these banks remain a concern. And that's clearly being reflected in some of the stock prices today. You can see those in front of you. Lots of these banks will probably need to raise money. And where is you as, as a depositor would you rather have your cash? In a big bank like a JP Morgan, a Bank of America or one of these small ones? And that's the concern. Take a look at Wall Street and we'll give you a sense of the price action. U.S. futures, volatile, as you would expect. A flight underway to relative safe havens she says, like government bonds. Europe sharply lower with banks there pacing losses. I think we have to expect turbulence, but authorities have acted. Depositors are safe. And now we ask how to prevent this in future, like President Biden said, and what it all means, of course, for the Federal Reserve's inflation fight. My next guest says the actions taken by U.S. authorities have greatly reduced the contagion risk for other economies around the world. Gerald Cassidy is managing director and head of U.S. bank equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets and joins us now. Wow, that was a lot of me. Gerald, quick, take it over. What do you make of the moves this weekend? Julia, you you summed it up very well. And I think it is sufficient. I, I think what they came out with yesterday is an incredibly strong program to support depositors, as you have identified. It's not just for the banks that actually failed. 
It's also an implicit guarantee for large deposits over 250000 for all banks. It's going to be very disruptive over the next 48 hours. This is not going to be a smooth transition, but I think we will get through it. And I think with the strength of these programs, that will help us get through this turbulent time. Would you expect the divergence that we're seeing between some of the larger banks, and I mentioned them, JP Morgan, Bank of America, just to use a couple of examples, and some of the smaller regional banks? Because despite the implicit, as we've discussed, guarantee on bigger deposits for some of these banks, the fact that these banks have the ability to use some of their government bond holdings or similar assets and get money, if I were a depositor, I'd still be looking at my bank account and going, everybody's saying it's safe, but I'm a little bit concerned. I, and I think time will uh, help with that concern. I can understand what you're saying. But we have to remember that all of the deposits at many of these institutions, whether they're under the legal deposit insurance of 250000 or above it, are, are going to be backed by the FDIC. But it's understandable why people would be concerned, particularly with some of the smaller banks whose stock prices have fallen dramatically in the last four to five trading days. But I think as we'll see with time, things will smooth out as people understand the program and really get their arms around it. So the program, obviously, the president addressed it a short while ago. I think you'll see more Treasury, Federal Reserve and FDIC officials out telling everyone what the program is about, reassuring the public that their deposits are safe. Yeah, you, you mentioned something there that I think is critically important to understand about Silicon Valley Bank. And that is there were two things going on here. There was a high concentration of deposits from the tech sector. And we know there's been a huge revaluation and the need for liquidity to get cash from many of these tech startups. And also the bank itself's exposure to government bonds that have lost value, at least on paper, as interest rates rise. And, and this is virtually unique to this bank, the combination of these two stresses at this moment in time. You're absolutely right. And I would point out that this bank, though it was highly successful in previous years, unfortunately, with the change in interest rates, it was became upside down, as we call it, in their bond portfolio. And when they took those losses last Wednesday, many of their large depositors who had millions, if not billions of dollars in deposits, quickly fled the bank, which caused the run on the bank. Now, what's interesting is, as this crisis is unfolding here, bond rates have declined, meaning bond prices in these portfolios are increasing. So these unrealized losses are shrinking as the 10-year government bond yield comes down. And so I think what you'll find is, to your point, Silicon Valley was very unique. It had over 90 or about 90% 90, 90 of its deposits were greater than 250000 That's not your normal bank. Normal banks have deposits less than 250,000, anywhere from 30 to 55% of total deposits, much more stable deposits. And now with this um, program announced, all the deposits should start to stabilize as the week uh, unfolds. And, and the, 
the vital point you make there is the diversification that for, for many of these banks, they have people who aren't lucky enough to have more than $250,000 um, in their bank accounts. And that makes a difference, too. Um, this was a blind spot, though, whether the for regulators, for our understanding of the vulnerabilities as interest rates rise. Are you concerned about and can regulators do better? Clearly, they can do better, but quickly do better at assessing these risks early on so that we don't have a sort of catalyst event over the course of a week like we just had. It's a really good question, because last week at the RBC Financial Institutions Conference in New York, one of the questions I was asking senior managements of companies like Citigroup and others, you know, interest rates had moved up so dramatically. And in years past, cycles past, like 1994, 95, when we had those kind of rate moves, we had debacles. Orange County, California filed for bankruptcy. Mexico had the peso crisis. So I was asking these management teams, why haven't we seen a debacle? Now, unfortunately, we have one 24 hours later. And I think you bring up a good point because the 0809 tragedy, the financial crisis, was a credit-led problem. This has nothing to do with credit. This all has to do with interest rates and a mismatch between the length of time that the bonds mature versus the funds they're using to support those bonds. You have to go back to 1979 and 1980 when the first Pennsylvania bank went under with this problem. That's how long ago. And I think what the regulators will obviously do is now take a look at interest rate risk as well as credit risk in assessing the bank's health. Which, to your point, arguably, they, they should have been doing before. Um, but wait, what were the management saying to you when you were asking this question? They were surprised as well. No one was obviously predicting, mm. of course, what happened uh, 24 hours after I was asking those questions. And everybody was surprised that something had not broken as well because rates had moved so much. Now, I don't want to point out, I don't want to suggest uh, regulators don't look at interest rate risk. They do. But this upside down bond portfolio problem came you know, out of left field because of the speed in which the information was moving, which is also, this is something very different that we've never seen before. To see a bank that was healthy at 3.59 p.m. on Wednesday go out of business by Friday morning was absolutely breathtaking. And so part of what needs to be addressed by the regulators is how quickly information moves. moves. And when, it's, um, when it deals with confidence, we've got to be very careful with that. So that's another issue that will have to be addressed once everything settles down, is how do we handle the speed in which this information can move around? Yes, that's actually a brilliant point. I couldn't agree more with you because we saw the, the panic, particularly on social media. And I think in the past, you wouldn't have had such a swifty bank run situation if information weren't flowing so fast. So uh, efficiency and in information can be really good in the financial sector, except in this kind of situation. Um, very quickly, do you think there's also a problem in communication between bank management and the regulators? I'm just trying to imagine um, a, a bank management trying to explain leveraged crypto to a regulator to ensure that they understand that what's going on and how things move with, with interest rates. And uh, I'm even struggling to uh, um, explain it here my, myself. So, and, and I'm not criticising, I'm just saying I, I can imagine that there is a challenge between bank management and regulators and even understanding some of the products out there right now and the vulnerabilities. 
Yes, the, the regulators are very close in monitoring all banks, especially our biggest banks. And generally, they've been doing a very good job since the financial crisis and under the Dodd-Frank stress test that all the big banks go through. And in the case of Silicon Valley, as you pointed out, this was not a crypto situation. Now, Signature Bank did have some crypto accounts, but that really wasn't the cause of their their problems. It was, again, the bond portfolio and the deposit outflows. But you're right. When it comes to crypto, it is different. But the regulators, I think, and the Federal Reserve in particular, have been addressing these issues on crypto. But the regulators and the banks generally have a very strong working relationship, especially, as I mentioned, with this annual stress test. When the, and those results come out every June. So we'll be seeing those for the biggest banks. And, and that stress test is very rigorous. And the banks in the past have easily passed it uh, in, in years past. Yeah, I just think those risk assessments need to be more dynamic than, than once a year or even reporting um, quarterly. Um, yeah, it's an ongoing conversation, no doubt. We'll come back to it. Gerard Cassidy, great to have you with us, sir. Thank you. The head of U.S. Thank Bank you. Equity Strategy at RBC Capital Markets. All right, coming up after this, we'll look at the international fallout from Silicon Valley Bank's downfall. And later, the CEO of one tech startup discusses getting caught up in the crisis. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The Silicon Valley bank collapse spreading far beyond just the U.S. banking sector in efforts, as you heard from President Biden and beyond to shore up the financial system. Over in the UK, HSBC announcing it's buying the bank's UK arm for just one pound. Anna Stewart joins us now. Anna, I know you have more of the details on this, but there were tremors through the UK tech sector too over fears of what this bank collapse would mean. Big tremors. I think it's been as busy a weekend for many in the UK as it has been in the US. And I think it's been hugely concerning, particularly for tech firms who banked with Silicon Valley Bank UK. Also, of course, for the Bank of England and for the government and for Chancellor Jeremy Hunt, who is just days away from his big first formal UK budget. He's been particularly busy. He was hugely concerned. Here's what he had to say about the rescue today. We were faced with a situation where uh, we could have seen some of our most important companies, our most strategic companies, uh, wiped out, and that would have been extremely dangerous. We have built, over the last decade, the third largest tech economy in the world, after only China and the United States. So it's very important to us, as a country, that this sector thrives. And that's why the Prime Minister, I, the Bank of England, were all rolling our sleeves up over the weekend to make sure we had a solution. Incredible that he said some of our most important companies could have been wiped out. That was the impact that they were looking at. And a deal was by no means guaranteed. It was interesting today that the CEO of HSBC, Noel Quinn, said it makes excellent strategic sense uh, for their business in the UK. It strengthens their commercial banking franchise uh, and so on and so forth. It gets them more involved in tech and life sciences, I suppose. But look at this. Look at these share prices. Clearly, HSBC investors maybe not very happy. You should see uh, a minus in front of those numbers, of course. They are all down. Down. Um, but actually, that's in fitting with other UK banks and actually European banks, which are dragging down the stock 600 generally. Is this just catching up from the market moves we saw in the US late on Friday when markets are closed here? Is this still concern over what this means potentially for other banks in a similar position 
against this backdrop of rising rates. Are there concerns, I think, about balance sheets here in the UK at banks and also in Europe? Yeah, it's posing all sorts of questions. I think it's also posing, oh my goodness, my speech today. (laughs) It's also posing questions about what central banks are going to be able to do over interest rates and whether this is going to make them more nervous, I think, because behind the scenes, we've still got this inflation battle going on globally. So um, I can throw more questions at you, Anna, but we're going to look to China now because SVB Bank, I did it, (laughs) is also part of a joint venture over in China too. Yeah, I was dreading saying the acronym, which is uh, SDPSVB. There is a joint venture. (laughs) Extraordinary. There is a joint venture in China. So this actually further complicates the issue for us because it's harder to really know what's going on here. What does it mean, given there was a 50-50 joint venture? What does it mean for SVB, Silicon Valley Bank's joint ownership of the joint venture? That bit is unclear, but we have had a statement from them which says the joint venture, that is, that says the bank has a standardized corporate governance structure and an independent balance sheet. They say that operations are sound. Interestingly, over the weekend, we had at least a dozen founders and companies coming out saying very clearly that either they had no exposure to SVP or very insignificant exposure. It was a lot of reassurance going on, a lot of nothing to see here. So far, that appears to be the case, not seeing any huge market moves as a result of that. But a very interesting response, I think, And we don't fully know what it means for that joint venture at this stage, but we may know more in the coming days. What was the joint venture called again? (laughs) Don't make me do it. (laughs) S-D-P-S-V-B. Sure. Anna Stewart, thank you for that. Okay, let's just take a look at what we're seeing for U.S. stock market futures at this moment. We're approaching the market open, of course, down some three quarters of a percent for the Dow, down six tenths of a percent for the Nasdaq. You'd expect it to be volatile, I think. And that's what we're seeing. We'll keep an eye on those numbers. Also coming up after the break, we'll talk to a tech startup impacted by the demise of Silicon Valley Bank and ask a former executive from the U.S. banking regulator, why didn't we spot these risks earlier and how do we do better going forward? That's next. Welcome back to First Move and recapping our top story today, the race to shore up confidence in the U.S. financial system. President Biden addressed the nation a short time ago in a bid to bolster public confidence following the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. In the past 24 hours, the Federal Reserve, the U.S. Treasury and the bank regulator, the FDIC, have said customers of Silicon Valley Bank, including well-known tech names and startups, will be able to access their cash today. That includes all uninsured deposits. So just to remind you, that's amounts over $250,000. But now the questions really begin over how regulators failed to see this coming. Joining us now, Santal Megji. He's former chief innovation officer at the U.S. regulator, the FDIC, and now a professor at Duke University's Pratt Engineering School. Great to have you on the show, Sultan. I think what's become very clear, and we've already discussed this on the show, is concentration risk. Concentration of deposits being made from startups from the tech sector, but also concentration risk on the balance sheet of a bank that was investing in government bonds, mortgage-backed securities that are very sensitive to interest rate rises. The combination, a perfect storm. 
That's exactly right. And, you know, it's not just this bank, which is, I think, some of the concerns across the banking regulators, including my former agency. We have this across all of the regional banks right now to one degree or another. And in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, it was absolutely a perfect storm of interest rate hikes coupled with balance sheet value decreases that just led, led them right into this. And that's where you come in, because what I want to understand is, whether in your mind, given your experience and the role that you for a short while played at the FDIC, you think there is a better way to assess some of the vulnerabilities, whether hindsight's always perfect sight, but there is a way to model in a more dynamic manner the changes in risk dynamics, particularly in an interest rate, a rising interest rate environment. Should we have seen this coming? I believe we should have, you know, for a long time now, we've had the ability with advanced analytics, especially machine learning, to be able to see these kinds of impacts and what first and so- first and second order impacts can be far more quickly and far longer before they actually become an issue. You know, five years ago, I was having graduate students do this work using, you know, call report data as well as open bank, you know, open bank and market data. And we were able to predict this kind of stuff, you know, 180 days in advance. So, you know, when I was at the agency, we put a lot of effort at the time into trying to build these analytic models that were better than just quarterly call reports. And I really wish that we did more of that kind of work to stop this kind of issue from happening again. Wait, 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 say that again. So basically five years ago, you had university students pulling in easily accessible data to model what would happen in adjusting interest rate environments And even five years ago, you think actually you would have had enough data. I mean, the Nasdaq collapse that we saw at the back end of last year, that would have flagged a warning. The holdings of government bonds, that would have flagged a warning. Is that what you're saying? Exactly right. You know, all of the all of this data is generally available. It's one of the great things about living in an open democracy. You know, you can download your bank performance data directly from the FDIC if you choose to. This is a absolutely solvable problem. And it's really just a matter of having access to the data and running, you know, fairly well, you know, understood analytics against it. And all of these would have caused me sitting in an examiner seat or sitting at a seat inside of one of these agencies to say, hey, this category of banks or these category of assets are something we should be paying more attention to. Oh, you've done it now because you did sit in one of those seats. You were the chief innovation officer for a while at the FDIC. Are they using this kind of modeling, as far as you know, today? Uh, You would have to ask them. I think I can read between the lines there. Um, I asked a question earlier on the show, and I'd like to get your wisdom on this. Again, being careful what you say, obviously, I'm sure. Um, How able to communicate do you think bank executives are to regulators about the financial system today, and particularly where tech startups are concerned, perhaps the needs that they have, the leverage that exists in the system right now, particularly in newer sectors like crypto? Uh, it's a fantastic question and one that I think we should be asking a lot more. You know, the the reality of the global financial system today is it's a 24 by 7, 365 real-time system. And that has created entire new categories of financial products and services, entire new technologies, entire new classes of assets. 
And in many ways, the regulatory system still looks like it did 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. And the disconnect there is fundamentally one of communication and engagement. You know, I really believe that the public sector and the private sector here could do a far better job of talking to each other about what one is doing to be more innovative while still playing inside the regulatory environment. And there's got to be a place for that communication to occur. But I think everybody could be doing a better job there. So in your mind, who's more at fault here? Regulators for not spotting, again, hindsight perfect sight, clear vulnerabilities, or bank management saying um, we may have to be selling at some point $21 billion worth of what are perceived to be in the market as about the safest assets you can buy, mortgage-backed securities, US government bonds, and then trying to raise capital against it. I'm sort of wondering where the blame is apportioned here? Well, I think there's a lot of blame on both sides. And it's important to remember that the way the banking regulatory environment works is it's not prescriptive. There isn't an official list of 187 questions that the bank examiners ask their banks. This is a very nebulous area in some ways. And so just as I think it's going to be very easy for people to say, well, Bank X should have been communicating more you know, formally, more thoughtfully, more proactively with the regulatory community and that absolutely should have happened but also you know we're going to have to do a better job on the regulatory side of getting smarter about knowing what questions to ask especially as it relates to advanced technologies and especially as it relates to this real-time activity where you know we hear about something on a thursday the bank is closed on friday and now you know on monday morning you and i are talking about how could we have seen this coming i know um well Perhaps the FDIC or some officials are watching this interview and um, would be interested in uh, seeing some of your dynamic modelling and obviously artificial intelligence, I know now, playing into this as well. Sultan, would you go back to the FDIC if they asked you to come and show what is available and the capabilities that it presents? Absolutely. Hmm. You heard it here first. (laughs) We'll ask them. Sultan, great to have you on. Thank you so much. Great to chat. Sultan Mekji there, the professor at Duke University's Pratt Engineering School. Great to chat. Okay, Sultan, on first move. Relief for small businesses after Silicon Valley's bank's sudden collapse. I speak to the CEO of one startup about what's next after this. Welcome back to First Move. Let me get you up to speed on what's happening on this historic day for global markets. U.S. stocks, volatile, as you would expect, as investors weigh the wide array of emergency measures pushed through by U.S. regulators in the past 24 hours to help shore up confidence in the global banking system. Regulators guaranteeing the uninsured deposits at collapsed Silicon Valley Bank. That's just one of the emergency measures announced. We're seeing truly extraordinary moves lower, however, in U.S. bond yields. Ten-year yields, which had been approaching 4% in the United States not too long ago, now below 3.5%. What does this reflect? Well, the expectations that the U.S. Federal Reserve will have to reevaluate its rate hiking path in the wake of this crisis. As Jared Cassidy at RBC Capital Markets told us earlier, this will help ease some pressure on U.S. banks that are currently holding treasuries, U.S. government bonds, that will currently be sold at a loss 
if they had to raise money. Now, a number of regional banks, however, under intense pressure in early trade. As we mentioned earlier, lots of these banks will probably need to raise money. And where would you rather have your cash as a depositor today, in a big bank or in a small? Now, as authorities raise to limit the fallout from the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, many businesses spent the weekend worrying about how it would impact them. Seattle-based food management startup Shelf Engine uses artificial intelligence to help grocery stores reduce food waste. Like many small companies that banked with Silicon Valley Bank, they found themselves without access to cash and wondering even how they would pay wages. The Biden administration has promised the bank's customers they will have access to all their money from today. And joining us now is Stefan Kalb. He's the co-founder and CEO of Shelf Engine. Stefan, I am sure you've had an incredibly busy weekend, week, so I appreciate your time all the more. Tell me how you're feeling and what this past week has been like. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, good morning, Julia. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, obviously, I'm quite relieved. Um, it was uh, a very stressful weekend um, and quite relieved with the news um, yesterday evening. However, I do have to say that I'm quite frustrated. Um, over the weekend, there was a narrative around you know, tech being the problem here um, and that there needs to be a bailout. And I really you know, think this is a super important piece for the American public to understand that this is not because tech is risky. We are good stewards of our capital. Um, we manage our company quite well. Um, this is a banking problem. This is the fundamentals of banking. This is about having uh, too small reserves in a bank. Um, and I understand you know, this balance between the velocity of money and risk. But nonetheless, um, this is really a banking problem. Yeah, I mean, I think there will be people watching this going, hang on a second, there are parts of tech that are risky and perhaps there was some excessive risk taking and there's going to be greater adherence perhaps in future to how we're going to make profits, which may be an unfortunate thing for, for companies trying to grow, such as yourself. But I do think you raise an important point about your view, which was I keep cash in a bank and that bank's safe. Yeah, that's absolutely right. This is not something that's speculative, right? Mm. This is not something that we put some money in and, and think, oh, we hope that this is some kind of big bet. This is a bank, just like anybody who's watching the show today puts money in their bank account and expects that to be in a safe place. That's the exact same thing that we were doing. We were keeping our money in a safe place. Yeah, you're not an equity analyst. You're not supposed to be uh, necessarily needing to analyze the, the health of your bank and what they're doing. Um, what would it have meant? Exactly for your business if you you didn't have access to cash beyond the $250,000 that, that was insured? Yeah, you know, we started looking at this um, late Thursday and, and early Friday morning, um, what kind of contingency plans. Realistically, we understood that we were going to get access to the $250,000 fairly quickly. Um, that is the $250,000 that the FDIC insures. Um, however, $250,000 um, for us is a relatively small amount of money and would have only kept us alive for a handful of days. The other thing to understand that's really important, um, given that I'm a founder and, and a CEO, is that if I uh, pay employees, or I should say have them work, and I can't pay them, I am personally liable for that payroll. Even on Friday, we had a withdrawal for our 401k that the employees had already deposited. They did not go through, it bounced. I'm personally liable for that. And that's a very high consideration. So $250,000 would have let us go for a handful of days, but I basically would have had to shut down the company by the end of this week. There was no other contingency plan. 
So over the weekend, of course, um, I was scrambling to find uh, debt options and other cash options. Um, our investors started stepping up in a meaningful way there. So we knew we started having some options, but nothing that was going to last that long. Um, so the news on Sunday evening was, was quite a relief. And for your 40 employees too, because not only were you personally liable, but they arguably would have been out of a job within the week, which um, is sort of devastating, I think, for, for all concerned. Um, one of the questions I want to ask you, why? Why did you have all of your money or that much money with, with SVB? Was that about the terms of doing business in accessing loans from SVB? It, it, it was. Yeah, so it sounds irresponsible. You might be asking right. yourself, or many people might be asking themselves, why did you have all of your capital in a single bank? There's two things. First of all, um, those are because of the terms. Um, it was pretty standard practice for SVB um, for debt to say, hey, if we're going to give you debt, you need to put all of your capital in our bank. So that was, that was piece number one. But piece number two, and this is one thing that's really important to understand, we don't think so today because of the latest news. But just you know, a week ago, Silicon Valley Bank was considered the gold standard. Silicon Valley Bank was the bank for the hot tech startups all the way to public companies. And when you are a startup and you raise money like we have, we've raised over $60 million to date, you have to have a few things right. Um, have the right lawyer, have the right accountant, and you have to have the right banker. And these bankers, the Silicon Valley bankers, um, they have the relationships with the investors. They are considered kind of top tier. And so, you know, we didn't ever give second thought to having all of our capital in one bank. Yeah. So you were better off going to investors and saying, look, we have the SVB stamp of, of approval than perhaps going to a, a different middle tier bank and, and getting money from them or depositing with them. Yeah, indeed. In fact, it would have been kind of confusing if we hadn't yeah. gone with one of the key banks for startups or for tech. It would have been kind of odd. Where's your money going to be now? <laughs> so I think it's going to be highly diversified. That's one thing for sure. Um, learned our lesson on that front. So on Thursday, um, once we heard the news, um, my co-founder and I ran to a J.P. Morgan Chase we found that to be probably the safest bank to go to, opened up an account immediately. Um, we wired the money on Thursday, <clears throat> but we were just a little too late, unfortunately. Um, so the money did not get out of our Silicon Valley bank account and did not make it um, into our Chase account. Hopefully that happens today. Um, I've been obsessively checking my email, nothing from the FDIC yet. Um, I've been checking the website. It just says that there's a technical error and they apologize for the inconvenience. Um, so hopefully the money will be able to be transferred shortly. We keep our fingers crossed. And Stefan, you have a really interesting business. So you're going to come on and talk to us about that in, in happier times and um, keep us posted, please, how you and your, and your team so. are doing. Stefan Kolb, so. CEO and co-founder of Shelf Engine. Great to chat to you, sir. Thank you. Okay, coming up, more on the race to stabilize confidence in the U.S. financial system. Our very own Richard Quest will join me to discuss after this. Welcome back to First Move, a volatile stock market picture on Wall Street. Stocks, though, well off their lows. Take a look at that. The Dow now trading three-tenths of a percent higher 
But many bank stocks tumbling to their lowest levels in over two years. Nervousness, uncertainty, despite the moves by regulators, the Federal Reserve and beyond to help shore up the banking system over the weekend following the Silicon Valley bank collapse, as well as the failure of the systemically important Signature Bank 2. Richard Quest joins us now. Richard, did the tech sector just get a bailout? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, you could dress it up any way you like, but the moment you went above the $250,000 limit, then yeah, de facto, but it was an insensible bailout as long as investors and shareholders uh, end up bearing the costs. Uh, Julia, I'm in Tel Aviv uh, in Israel, where, of course, Startup Nation and the, the headquarters of tech globally in many ways. I've been talking to one of the top tech investors Globally, Shlomo Drachet of Viola, uh, the VC group, he said to me today, it's not systemic. He had accounts with SVB. He said he's had his phone ringing off the hook with other banks offering to take the money. He thinks it is an example of banking going that got their sums and their actuarial tables and uh, their, their banking, if you like, risk management wrong, Julia, but he says it is not, in his view, systemic to tech. Oh, so interesting, isn't it? Not systemic for tech. That's important. I think, and I'm sure you'll give me your view on this, I think it could have been without these moves from regulators over the weekend to shore up, to protect, implicitly protect other banks too, the uninsured deposits just to ensure that the uncertainty, the lack of knowledge that we have and individuals have too, let's be clear, about other banks didn't create something bigger. Julia, Julia, moral hazard. Have you forgotten moral hazard? I mean, you know, so, so where do you stop this bailout stuff? These are relatively small institutions, relatively systemically to the global banking system. They are, I agree, depositors have been made whole. But you have to ask, what purpose? I heard your previous guest, by the way. I heard your previous guest talking about the effects that would have happened if they'd not been made whole above 250k. But then the, he was the example of moral hazard, in a sense, because the moment you make everybody whole, you basically say there's no risk. Well, shareholders didn't get a bailout. Bondholders didn't get a bailout. They got wiped out. Quite right. Quite right. Right. Quite right. So I, I think that's that sort of underscores of, the bailout. That's the nature of equities. <laughs> Richard, I'm being told off. Please come back tomorrow and we'll continue this conversation. I don't think the tech sector got bailed out, but I'm being told to, I've got to let you go. Richard, oh. thank you. For jo- I know, for joining us. I get the last word. It's my show. Thank you for joining us. OK, and finally, the most important Oscar goes to. It has been just incredible from strength to strength to strength. I mean, if and uh, if I feel like the elephants, God bless us, and we do win It'll be historic. And that was last week. And the elephant god certainly smiled upon India during Sunday's 95th Academy Awards. We're sending huge congratulations to recent First Move guests and now Oscar winners, Gurdit Monga and Kartiki Gonsalves, and the entire team behind the short documentary, The Elephant Whisperers. The film tells the story of a South Indian couple as they care for an adorable orphaned baby elephant named Ragu, 
and his sister too. The team made history as the first ever Oscar win for an Indian production. Huge congratulations once again to them. And that's it for the show. Connect the World is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.